After departing from the Queen Mary and clearing customs on the Southampton dock by ten in the morning, I leapt aboard a train for Oxford with my small borrowed trunk and one suitcase. In the three years since I was last in England, British Railways had surely not upgraded the third-class car I rode in, musty gray upholstery, and a good deal of empty space. Nonetheless, I reached my destination, Merton College's 13th Century Entrance Lodge, just in time to collide with my tall old teacher and friend, Neville Coghill. He swept me up to join him for lunch in the senior common room. The new scout for the rooms on my staircase, one of the several men that served the young gentlemen in the still all-male colleges, carried my bags along to my former rooms in the ancient mob quad, the same two rooms with an overstuffed sofa and chairs that suggested ancient Rome more than medieval Britain, and windows on the college chestnut tree and Christchurch meadow with its cows and football-playing schoolboys. Oxford was mostly unchanged. There had been a lot of cleaning and refacing of college buildings. The coal-black virgin on Merton Chapel turned out on washing to be very beautiful, but my old rooms seemed quite unchanged and full. In the SCR, it was a welcome surprise to find my old love, Matthias, already seated at the table. He'd walked over from his own college on the chance that I might have arrived by then, and here now I was. The trains mostly ran on time. Still his dashing self, though a little weary around the eyes, Matthias beamed his expected magnetism, but slight signs suggested that his intervening trips to his family home in Eastern Europe had saddened him appreciably. And in what ways did he see that I'd likewise changed after my first three years of teaching at Duke? Well, common room table was hardly a place for private talk between us, but other talk there was a plenty, and in quantity and quality as I'd hoped. In a matter of minutes, then, I was enveloped in what I'd anticipated so strongly. Though my student friends were gone, the compelling but unpretentious melding of mind in mature male voices. Not that I'd been entirely deprived of good talk in America. Lately in Macon, Warrenton, Raleigh, Durham, New York, and a few other places, I'd felt delighted and instructed more than a few times by a wide spectrum of several brands of good talk. But in no other place had I sat with others as enthusiastically devoted as these few men around a long, broad table to genuine discourse. In addition to weeks in my old rooms again, I'd been made a member of the senior common room, so with any luck at all, I'd just commenced a fourth year of this. My main hope lay in Matthias, though, a don from Eastern Europe with whom in my last visit to England I'd experienced an intense romance, one that I thought had at least some amount of love on each side, as well as sexual contact of a highly exciting new kind. In days when few dons traveled to the States, and none seemed to emigrate as hundreds do now, we'd kept our mutual awareness alive by my gift for long-distance longing, by frequent letters, and my own hell-bent intention to meet back here as soon as my slim funds would permit. After lunch, Neville suggested a walk around Christchurch Meadow, so Matthias and I joined him under a sky that by then was brilliantly clear and hot for June.
Even the regulation loud red geraniums were lusher than I remembered, and as we passed those on the window ledges of student rooms in Christchurch Meadow building, Neville said, It would seem a sizable pity, wouldn't it? I asked, What would? With a wide wave of his huge right hand, he said, Just to end it now, with all this around us. In five days on the ocean, I hadn't quite heard that the Western powers and the Soviets were once again shaking their hydrogen bombs at one another over the still-divided city of Berlin.